Thank you for joining us today for the Church of Rock Calgary podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us or have any questions, please email info at cotrcalgary.ca. We hope you enjoyed today's message. We were looking at, at Open Doors, and, you know, I, I shared last week about September 19th how um, the Lord spoke to me, and I was journaling and praying, and he told me that it was a season of Open Doors uh, in my life personally, but as a church. And it was interesting, I, I mentioned that that very day at 10 to 3 in the afternoon is when I found out that this new venue was available to us. And God had actually kind of warned me about that in the morning. Now, I had no sense that that was going to happen that day. So to me, that got me pretty excited because I knew, A, I was hearing God, which is always helpful, and B, when God tells you that it's a season of open doors, it means that where it's been closed, he's going to open it. You know, what we looked at last week was the key thing is that God opens and closes doors. We looked at Revelation 3, 7, and 8, and here's what it says there. It says, um, uh, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, this is God, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. So the point was God opens and closes doors. And sometimes, if, and you'll know this in an area of your life where you can't seem to break through. Even though you're doing your best, you're praying, you're seeking God, and it's like this door isn't opening. Sometimes it's not that uh, the enemy's opposing you. Sometimes it's God saying, I am not opening that door yet. I personally feel that way about this venue, about our church venue. We, we were banging on the door for years, looked at multiple places over time. Didn't work. All of a sudden, here we are in 2019, November, and the door's open. Because I believe it's God's timing. I don't think you can ram doors open. I think God needs, especially if you're looking at a venue in Calgary that you can afford and works, it's not easy. Believe us, it's not easy. But God opened a door for us. So I think we need to understand God opens and shuts doors. You know, when we left Medicine Hat, interesting that the Sunday we left was um, January, was January 11th, uh, or January 7th, 2011. <clears throat> it was 10 years to the Sunday that we started in that church. 10 years to the Sunday. Now, I never planned that. But when, I, when we left that Sunday, I realized this is 10 years of Sundays. And I remember when we were planning to leave or felt God calling us to leave and I was struggling with wanting to leave because we love that church. And I felt the Holy Spirit tell me, um, your time's over. It's time to leave. Wrap it up, turn it over and leave. Door shutting, right? Now I, I could have said, no, I'm putting my foot in the door. I'm gonna keep the door open, which wouldn't have been very smart for me. It would have been a lack of blessing. God said, no, the door is shutting. It's my choice. You're done. Close it move on. And that's what happened. And literally 10 years of Sundays. Amazing. So God opens and shuts doors. Last week we looked at the door, door number one, the door of relationship. And Revelation 3, Jesus there is talking to the church of Laodicea. And he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And we talked about how that verse, that passage is actually talking to believers. We often use it for unbelievers, you know, and it's true. God is knocking at the doors of those that don't know him, but he's also knocking at the doors of us who know him. And he's saying, I want to know you more. I want to draw you close. I want to speak to you. I want to share my heart with you. 
So we looked last week at some very practical ways that you and I can have a quiet time with God. We can have personal time where we listen to him and we spend time with him. I want to encourage you, if you missed last week's message, it's actually not up on podcast yet. It will be this week. There's a component we're missing and we're changing staff on that. So, um, but listen to it because I think it'll help you, right? I think it'll help you as far as um, your personal quiet time because sometimes that's a real difficult thing to figure out how that looks. And hopefully last week's was simple. I had feedback. People thought it was pretty straightforward and helpful. So I'd encourage you to listen to that and that'll, that'll maybe encourage you with that. All right, door number two today is the door of adversity. You're like, what? The door of adversity. I don't want to go through that door, right? That doesn't sound very positive. If you were on Let's Make a Deal, anybody remember this show with me, Monty Hall? He died at 96 two years ago. Wow, Monty Hall, Let's Make a Deal, three doors, choose which door you want. And sometimes people would choose the bad door and they'd get like a goat, right? Or they'd choose the good door and they'd get a brand new car. It's quite a... so. Today we have door number two, and it may look like the goat door, right? I'm just saying, because it's like the door of adversity. Who wants to pick that door? Pick one of these three doors. I want the one of relationship, thank you. I don't want door number two, the adversity door. But let me just share something with you. The door of adversity, adversity is actually an opportunity to go to the next level. It's true. And how many people realize that adversity is something we all go through? Anybody here never gone through adversity? Richie. Okay, Richie. We'll, we'll bring you up later. We're going to pray for lying. We're going to deal with that. <laughs> We've all gone through adversity, right? We've all had door number two in our lives. Now, sometimes we didn't choose door number two. It just came to us, right? Generally, adversity comes to us. It's not something we choose. But what we do choose is how we go through the door. We choose. How am I going to embrace this moment? How, how am I going to interact with God? Um, what, what narrative am I going to tell myself? How, what am I going to believe through this? These are the choices we make in adversity. Adversity just becomes the, the hothouse, the scenario that actually tests us. You, you hear what I'm saying? So we do have some choices to make when it comes to the, the time of adversity. I remember, and I've shared this before, and I won't share details because I have before, but one of the biggest doors of adversity God ever opened to us is back in the mid-90s when we moved to Tabor, Alberta to work with a church there and to help uh, with youth. In, in the end, it was youth ministry, volunteer in Tabor, Alberta, but we moved there um, to, to help them, and it ended up that... God used it as a seven-year testing period, financially and otherwise, that was just brutal. Uh, if you ever want to hear the inner thoughts on that, read my book. I share a lot about that period of time. It was really hard. And, but when I look at it, it was actually an opportunity. And what it did in our lives is, is priceless. What it, what it produced in us is, what, is the reason why we can do what we do today. It's the reason why Val and I can minister today and lead churches and do these things. Why? Because there was a lot done in that season that was adverse. It was terrible. But God used it. It was actually a door of opportunity for us. And thankfully, in the end, we came through and we had God work in us. So Romans 8 says this. And this is a really good, this is fridge-worthy. 
always talk about some passages you don't want to put on your fridge, but some you do. This one, Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Who have been called according to his purpose. Can I ask you a question? What is your greatest purpose in life? What is your greatest purpose? Like, for all of us collectively, what is the purpose that God has called us to? Now, when I look at according to his purpose, I, I realize that we all have individual specialized purposes, giftings, callings, right? And, and this verse tells me, this passage says, you know what? In all the things in life, as I surrender to God, as I let him work in my life, he'll use that for the purpose he's called me to. He'll use it like he did in Tabor for Val and I to prepare us for the purpose of leading a church, for ministry, for leading a network, all these things. He used that for his purpose. But I think there's a broad purpose for all of us. Broad purpose for all of us. And I wanna use a scripture to kind of show you what that primary purpose is and how it sometimes relates to the stuff we don't like. Okay, you ready here? This, this, this verse will mess with you a little bit. It could mess with you. Are you ready for that? It's John 9, 1 to 3. So as Jesus is going along with his disciples, he, he sees a man blind from birth. This man has never seen anything. This man has been blind from the day he was born. So his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? <laughs> See, we're always trying to figure out who to blame. You ever found that out? And even in Christianity, we try and do that. I mean, I know people like that. Something bad happens to somebody. Somebody's not healed. Somebody goes through something difficult. They're immediately trying to figure out, is it his sin or is it someone else's sin or why is this happening? Anybody know people like that? They got to affix blame somewhere. The disciples are doing the same thing. They're like, who? Why was this guy born like this? Is it his parents? Did they sin? Is it his own sin? And Jesus says this. He goes, neither. This man nor his parents sinned. Now, this is, the, this is the complicated statement that Jesus makes. Don't you like Jesus, how he makes these statements that kind of blow our minds, right? He goes, but this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Uh, what? Jesus? Yeah, no, this happens so God's work could be displayed in his life. What was Jesus saying? He's actually saying this guy was born blind so that right now when I walk by, I will heal him and everyone will know that he was born blind and they'll be blown away and they'll magnify God through his life because I touched him. Does that kind of play with your brain a little bit? No, 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 we could argue with that except Jesus said it. It's hard to argue with Jesus. Jesus said it. He said, no, this guy actually, in my economy, and my plan, he, 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 he's blind, but I'm going to use him right now. And so Jesus, Jesus does the unorthodox thing. He takes mud and he puts it in his eyes and he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He goes down, washes, and he can see. It's an amazing story. There's a lot to it. But my point is this. Jesus was saying that that man, now listen to this for a minute. You got to get the essence of this. That that blind man's purpose, even in his weakness, even in his deficiency, listen to me on this, was that the work of God might be displayed in his life. 
Now, think about this. There are people in the world who are strong in areas, and we can see, we can look at somebody who's strong and say, wow, we might say, well, look at how God is working through that person's life. They're so strong. They're so confident. But how many people think that probably most of us aren't that way? We're all deficient. Hello, right? We are all deficient in areas of our life. And if I look at my deficiency, I might say, God, I can never glorify you in my weakness. And God actually looks at me and says, you know what, Ian? Your weakness, when turned to me and allowed me to come into your life, will actually glorify me because people will see me and not you. They'll know it was me. Hello. Now, this is contrary to what we think because we think that by looking perfect and like we have it all together and like we're just the best spiritual person, that that's how God's glorified. You know how God's glorified? When you and I and our weakness and our imperfection turn to him and he works in our lives and out of that people say, wow, that must be God because it's sure not him. Hello, right? I know you guys feel that every Sunday when I speak and I'm glad. That must be God. It's sure not him. And I'm thinking it's sure not me, right? Because that's how God works. That's how God works. He takes weakness and adversity and displays his might. And the world is amazed. You know, um, John F. Kennedy, don't usually quote him very often, but he talks about the Chinese use two brushstrokes to write the word crisis. One brushstroke stands for danger and the other for opportunity. In a crisis, be aware of the danger, but recognize the opportunity. See, in adversity, there's danger. In adversity, you and I are in trouble. There is risk to us. We, we might not prosper. There could be negative things that happen to us. But in adversity, there's also opportunity. There's also opportunity. If we see things properly, for God to come through and do only what he can do. Now, I want to give you an example in the Bible of this. I want to give you an example of someone in the Bible who needed adversity to fully understand who God was. Who needed adversity. Now, let me just say this. If this person needed adversity to fully understand who God was, then all of us do. Can I be real with you? All of us do. Because <laughs> when I tell you who this guy is, you're going to go, oh, wow. And it's none other than Jacob, who became Israel. The, the, the patriarch of the whole nation of Israel. His 12 sons, all of that. Jacob needed adversity to fully understand who God was. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you this picture. It's, it's actually quite amazing. As I studied it, I'd never seen it this way before. Now, Jacob is an interesting character, isn't he? he, he, he he's a, a twin, him and his brother Esau, they're fraternal twins. And there is a really bad statement about his life immediately when he's born. Because he's grasping at his brother's heel. Right? They call him Jacob because he means supplanter or heel grasper. A heel grasper is somebody who's trying to steal from another. He literally was born grasping at his brother's heel saying, I want to be my brother. I want what my brother has. <laughs> started in the womb. Can you imagine? I mean, and actually with his mother, pardon me, they, they jostled in the womb. And so his mother, Rebecca, was told that these are like two nations within you. <laughs> A lot goes on in the womb, folks. Listen, like, you know, 
our world believes that people don't become people till they leave the womb. Well, seriously, there were two nations jostling in the womb. I mean, this was serious. And when he comes out, he's grabbing his brother's heel. They call him Jacob, supplanter, heel grabber. And he's that way his whole life. He's always after his brother. He's trying to get his birthright. He's trying to bribe his brother off. And we know the story how he, he eventually gets the birthright by faking out his blind dad, by wearing his brother's clothing and, you know, bringing him food and telling him that he was Esau and he gets the blessing. And his brother says, I'm going to kill him. As soon as my dad dies, I'm going to kill him. So angry. And so Jacob flees to his uncle Laban's. He spends years there, has married twice those days, and, and ends up, though, very, very, very blessed. In the end, he leaves with a lot of animals, great possessions, and his family is large. But he has to leave because his uncle is cheating him. His uncle is not being fair with him, so he has to leave. So he flees, he leaves, and once his uncle Laban realizes he's gone with his daughters and his whole family, he chases after him. God warns Laban, don't touch him. Don't lay a hand on that man because he's mine. So Laban comes to Jacob, basically. They sign a treaty or have a treaty that Laban's not going to do any harm to Jacob. And Jacob moves on. But then Jacob has to deal with another problem, his brother. Now, you know, can you imagine? In those days, and we don't understand what the birthright is, but the birthright, the blessing of the birthright was everything because it meant something. When the firstborn was blessed with all the material blessings and everything, they, they, it was enacted. They were blessed, and Jacob stole it from his brother. So Jacob, with his family now having left his uncle Laban, decides, I better, I better do something. I better, um, you know, make peace with my brother. And I think Jacob thinks that so much time has gone by that probably all is well. So what he does is he, he sends you know, messengers ahead to Esau to tell him he's coming. And he's hoping that the response is going to be very positive, right? Here's what happens, Genesis 32. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. <laughs> I'd be peeing my pants at this moment. 400 men, seriously. Like, what would he be bringing 400 men with him for? Little welcoming party? I'd be thinking like Jacob. I'd be like, he's bringing forward a man because he's going to slaughter us all. He's going to kill me. And of course, he doesn't know any better. He has no idea. But 400 men come in with his brother. I mean, it says in verse 7, of course, in great fear and distress. So he's, he goes into management and he thinks, okay, I got my family here. Um, how can I mitigate the damage? Let's split, our, let's split them up so that that if they attack, that maybe only, you know, some of us will survive, maybe others will be attacked and not. And so he's thinking, so he divides the people with him into two groups and the flocks and the herds and the camels. Um, and he thinks if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. So he's really scared. He's, he's trying to do this. And then he prays, which is always good to do. And he prays a little more than help, which is often how we pray at these moments, right? Anybody been there? help, God, help me, which is valid. But he says, oh, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, 
Go back to your country and your relatives and I'll make you prosper. He's reminding God of the promises God's given him. Very important to do. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I become two camps. Save me from the hand of my brother Esau. Yeah, no kidding. For I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But, but you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. It's interesting to see what, what Jacob does there. And this is important for us too when we, come into difficulty. When Jacob hits this difficulty that seems to go completely against what God's promised him, he turns to God and then he reminds God of the promises he's been given. And he's also reminding himself. He's like, okay, God, you told me that we'd become a great nation. And God, if we all get killed, that won't happen. So I'm assuming, God, that we're not all going to get killed. That's what he's doing, right? Like, God, um, and God, in case your memory's a little short here, just remember that you promised this to me because I need you to protect me right now because my brother looks a little upset. He's sending 400 men my way. So God, help me. And so that's what he's doing. He's reminding God in a nice way. So what he does is he sends his whole family across. He, he sends a whole bunch of gifts ahead of him. He's a pretty smart guy. Remember, he's kind of Jacob. He's the deceiver. He's pretty pretty clever. So he sends all these gifts ahead to his brother. And so as his brother comes along, he's going to have one little set of gifts, which would be like some animals. And he's going to go, oh, whose animals are these? These are your servant Jacob's animals, right? So he's trying to kind of soften them up, right? And then he goes on a little further and there'll be another little, little pack of animals or another gift. And this is from your humble servant Jacob. You see what he's doing? He wants to soften them up, make them friendly to him. So he does that. And then it says in verse 22, that night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and he crossed the fort of the Jabbok. After he sent them across the stream, listen to this, he sent over all his possessions. Verse 24, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Through the night until dawn, he wrestled all night. Now, let me just, I want to just look at something here for a minute. Notice what happens. It says, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob is left on the other side of the river with nothing. He sent his family across. He sent his possessions across. He has nothing. Now let me just say something. It's interesting in our lives that sometimes the moment of greatest revelation is when we feel like we have nothing. You ever been there? When we feel like God is keeping us in a tight spot, and we're, we're limited. And all the things we depend on, our possessions, even relationships, are in some fashion cut off from us. They are, we're isolated. And, and those can be painful moments. You know what happens in those isolating moments? Is often what'll happen is we'll turn to addictions. We'll turn to those things that we shouldn't do, right? Now, Jacob has a wrestle with God here. It says, through the night. Anybody here ever wrestled through the night? See, night wrestling seasons are part of life. Can I tell you that right now? They're part of life. And if we tell you otherwise, we're lying to you. If I stand here and tell you that you can avoid all the night wrestling seasons, I'm lying to you. I'm not helping you. Because there will be wrestling seasons in your and my life. I've had them a number of times. 
night seasons, dark seasons, tight seasons. And I've had to wrestle with God and I've had to hold in there and I've had to fight for what God had called me to do. I lovingly encourage you, if you've not gone through this, you will go through it, but God will be with you. But if you embrace the door of adversity, great things will come out because they always do because God is with you. And he wrestles till dawn. He wrestles till dawn. Can I encourage you with something? If there's an area right now in your life where you're wrestling, don't give up. You say, well, it's the middle of the night. I just want to let go. Can you imagine Jacob wrestling with this man who ends up being God? It might be tempting halfway through to give up the wrestle, to just let go. I don't want to wrestle anymore. You win. Why is Jacob wrestling anyway? He's actually wrestling for his destiny. He's actually fighting for his future. He's wrestling with God because he's like, God, bless me. God, I need you to move in my life. My family's at risk. I'm at risk. My destiny's at risk. And he's wrestling with God over the big issues of his life. And I'm sure he was tempted to give up, but he didn't give up. He wouldn't let go. Now, it's hard for us to think about wrestling God. It's counterintuitive to imagine that. And yet, again, it's in the Bible. It's an interesting picture that God allows us to have here. He says, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. <laughs> Jacob is tenacious. I will not let you go. Until you bless me. I remember back in those 90s in Tabor when we were like pretty much bankrupt financially, trying to be faithful in a town where I actually had to go elsewhere to get a job. And God said, You stay in this place, you don't leave. It was hard. My mom died. My brother lived in the other city. I mean, it was challenging. And I, Val and I were in the wrestle of our lives. I remember wrestling for my provision, living check to check, hand to mouth completely, straight commission, no base. I remember that. And wrestling for my own sanity in some ways, wrestling to trust that this big picture vision God had given me for my life, that I would be a pastor and a leader would actually come. I remember, I remember the times we wrestled. I remember we agonized and cried out to God that he would release us, that he would hear us. I remember. And you know what? That wrestle changed us forever. And here's the interesting thing. God touched Jacob and he had a limp from then on. He had a limp from then on. They always tell you, don't trust a leader without a limp. <laughs> well, you got one with a limp. I limp. <laughs> I'm, I have limps because I've been broken in parts of my life. And listen to me. God will do the same to you. Our limps the places that we stand in there and we end, up, um, we end up having that wrenching happening in our life actually becomes a place of strength. I know all of this talk is counterintuitive. Our mind goes, ah, this doesn't make sense to me. I don't know if I like this message. Just stay with me. It's gonna get better. Believe me, it's gonna get better. So the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with humans have overcome. Isn't it interesting? God changes his name. He says, you have struggled with God and you've overcome. 
There is something intrinsic about the name of a person. Think about it, who they are. To me, this is a picture of how in the darkest places of life, God literally changes who we are. Something in our essence shifts when we let God work in the tough spots. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. I love this picture. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Forever, his whole life, from then on, he would be limping. Think about it. His family would see him, and he had a limp. But that limp, that tough part of his life, signified the moment where he grabbed a hold of God, and he gained his own faith. Now, I want to show you this. This is very, this is, this is interesting picture here. You know, Paul understood the limp. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 11. Look what Paul says. The great Paul, the great apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, but also went through more adversity than you and I will ever know. Shipwrecked on the seas, thrown in prison, um, left for dead. I mean, you... <laughs> You read his life, it's like, I got a great life, God, thank you. I don't really want to be as powerful as Paul. I'll just read his writings. Thank you, thank you, God. You know what I'm saying? But he, he so here, here you would think, when Paul assessed all of this, that he would have some truth. Well, he does. Here's what he says. He talks about how he has a weakness, and he doesn't tell us what it is. But he said that three times he asked God to take it away, and God said, no, I'm not taking it away, Paul. Some people think it's probably the Jews who followed him from place to place and, and tormented him and constantly stirred up crowds against them. Some people think that's what it is. Some people think it's physical. We don't know. Whatever it was, it drove Paul nuts. He's like, take this away from me, God. Three times he said, God, this thorn in my flesh, this weakness, take it away from me. And God says this to him. Again, this is in the Bible. Okay, everything I'm sharing is in the Bible. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My power is made perfect in weakness. Wow. My power is made perfect in weakness. I mean, God, your power is made perfect in my weakness, where I'm flawed, where I'm deficient, that when I allow you in, your power is made perfect? He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul says, I got the secret. The secret is when I'm dependent on God and when I let go of my own plans and devices and when I depend on him, God is strongest in my life. Therefore, God, I want to be weaker. Wow. I want to be weaker, God. I want to be more dependent, God. I want to be more at your feet, God. I need you more, God. I want you to crush more out of me, God. I want to be more like you. Oh, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight, wow, in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulty. I delight in it. Paul, I don't delight in these things. Man, I don't know. Do you delight in these things? Whew. He says, I delight in them. Why? For when I am weak, then I'm strong because God has his greatest opportunity in me. See, when you and I get out of the way, God gets big. When you and I are at our extremity, God is able to come and do something. You know what, what's so encouraging about this is that this is for all of us. This is for everybody. This is the gospel. This is the good news. We're all weak. We're all deficient. And God says, you're all qualified. I want to do something in your life. I'll do more than you imagine because I'm going to take your weakness and I'll turn it into strength. Now, Jacob was resting for his destiny. 
He was wrestling with his fears for the future. You think about it. He didn't know. He thought 400 soldiers were going to come, 400 men were going to come and kill his family. He's wrestling with his fears. You ever wrestle with the fears for your future? You ever wrestle with the fears for your family? That's what Jacob was doing. He was wrestling for his family. He was wrestling for his destiny. God, you promised me this, God. My brother's going to kill me tomorrow. Is your promise going to fall to the ground, God? He's wrestling for that. He's wrestling for his family. He's wrestling for security. But he's wrestling with the right person. Listen to me. He's wrestling with God. Right? God doesn't mind a wrestle. <laughs> God actually welcomes him wrestling. God actually is like, wrestle with me. And he, and, he, and he competes with this man who represents God. All night he competes for his future. Can I encourage you with something? Some of you here, God is stirring you to wrestle for your destiny and your future. Some, some are here are tempted to lie down and just let things happen and not, not fight anymore. In fact, the enemy's come to you and he lies to you and he tells you it's not worth it. He tells you God's let you down. He tells you that God's not faithful. Can I just encourage you with something? Don't believe him. He just wants you to check out. He wants you to let go of the fight that God has you in because God is doing something deep in your life that is gonna produce great fruit if you'll remain in it and let him work in you. Some of you are, you have been buffeted by the enemy. He has come to you and he, he, he beats up on you and he lies about God all the time. He tells you God's not good. And I wanna I want just encourage you today. You push back at him and you wrestle with God. You push into God. Don't push away from him. Don't isolate from him. You push into him. Say, God, I don't understand this right now, but I'm going to wrestle with you. I'm going to push into you because my whole future depends on you, God. Either you open this door, either you move me forward and protect me and my family, or it won't happen. You know what? God's up for that wrestle. You know where the problem is? We often don't wrestle. We're passive. We let it go. And the enemy pushes us aside. God says, don't do that. Because on the other side of that wrestle, yeah, there, there's, there'll be a limp. God's gonna touch you in part of your life and it's gonna create greater dependence on him. But that limp is actually what's gonna cause his grace to come to you. And it will be a visible sign of God's grace to everyone else. See, God doesn't do things the way we do them. He does them opposite. Now, here's what happens with Jacob. I'm going to finish with this. It's interesting how Jacob changes his view of God. I'm going to jump down and I'll come back to Genesis 33. So I'm going to jump down to Genesis 28. So Jacob has this amazing moment at Bethel. I don't know if you remember reading that. He, there's a stone there. He, it's like the stairway to heaven. You ever heard that? It's not a song, by the way. It's not that song. But, but, but there's a stairway that's above him with angels ascending and descending. It's this amazing vision he has. And God is standing at the top. And there above it, it says, stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. Later on, uh, in Genesis 31, Jacob says this to Laban as he leaves from serving his uncle Laban. He says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. God of my father, the God of Abraham. Fear of Isaac, his father. Genesis 32, verse 9, just before the wrestling match, here's what he prays. Oh, God of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac. Now, after, look at this. 
after he wrestles with God, look what happens. Genesis 33. He, he now has crossed that river with his limp. He now has met his brother Esau. And now he's moving to Shechem where he's gonna set up with his family. God has taken care of him. God has led them forward. And he says he sets up an altar and calls it El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. Now, you gotta hear this point. You gotta get this point. Previously, before he wrestled, his God was the God of his father and his grandfather. But after he wrestles with God, his God becomes his father, his God. He becomes the God of Israel. You see, God doesn't have any grandchildren or there's no children or grandchildren in the kingdom. My kids, my grandkids are going to have to wrestle with God like I have. They're going to have to find God for themselves, right? I would love it if they didn't have to. I would love it if I could save them the wrestle. Anybody here, parents? I don't want them to wrestle like I did. I don't want them to go through tough times. I don't want them to have to grasp the hold of God. I want it to be easy. And God says, Ian, if it's easy, they'll not have to wrestle and I won't become their God. See, he had heard all the stories. He knew the stories of Abraham. He knew the stories of his dad. He knew what God had done. But we can't lean on the stories of what happened to our parents and our grandparents. It has to be our story. But when he wrestles with God and he comes through the other side and he's met God and God has touched him, that becomes, God becomes his God. He's the God of Israel. That's a powerful picture. I want to speak to parents here. I want to speak to parents. I felt like when I was ready to pray this, I felt the Lord said, there's some parents in the room and their kids are, are wrestling. In fact, there's parents here and you're afraid about your kids wrestling because part of your fear is, Lord, what if, what if they don't come out right? What if they don't come out the right side of that wrestle? But I felt the Holy Spirit wanted you to know that he's with them, that he's with you, and that you need to trust the wrestling your kids are going through. And you need to know that he's with them. In some ways in the, that you can't see, they're actually wrestling with him. They're fighting with his call in their lives. They're fighting with what he said about them. And there's other things coming at them. The enemy's there working, but ultimately he's involved in their wrestle. And I just felt like God wanted you to know that he's gonna bring them through the other side of it. And they're gonna, they're gonna say, he's now my God. He's not my parents' God. He's my God. I've experienced his salvation for myself. I've experienced his revelation for myself. Some parents need to hear this. I felt the Holy Spirit tell me, they need to hear this. I felt like he wants to set your mind at ease because you struggle with the fact that they're wrestling. It bothers you. But the Lord says, I'm involved in the wrestle. Pray for them. Pray that they will stand firm through that wrestle. Pray that as they grapple with me, that in the end, I touch them and they have a limp. And they have a call and their calling and their destiny is going to be fulfilled because of that limp, because of the way he touches them. Does this make sense to anybody? Do you hear what I'm saying? Really felt you need to hear that. We can't be afraid of that. They, God has to become their God in their reality. And he'll deal with their questions. He'll deal with their struggles. He's big enough. He's in control of them. He's going to work through their life. 
I love what blogger Dina Johnson Martin says about this in a quarter. You see, until Jacob had a divine wrestling match with God, until he had a very personal struggle with God, his faith was not cemented. It was not his own. Yes, he knew of his father's faith. He had most definitely heard the stories of his grandfather's faith, but he was only living his faith vicariously through their faith. It had not been solidified in his life. We find a similar sentiment in the book of Job. After literally losing everything, his kids, his wealth, his health, and spending untold hours arguing with God and his friends, Job finally sees things from God's perspective. And he says this, I had heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. I had heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. See, adversity is a door. It's a door. It's a door to seeing God for who he is. If we embrace it, if we embrace God, and if we push into him and we let him work in our life, God will show us who he is in our adversity. Whatever adversity you're in today, whatever you're wrestling with, whatever you're struggling with, God is with you and loves you. God is doing something deep in your life. He just wants to encourage you today. He wants to let you know that he's in control. What are some keys to wrestling going through this door of adversity? The first key I want to give you just quickly is prayer. Prayer. You know, one of of the ways we pray is we examine our hearts. I don't know about you, but adversity causes me to examine my heart. Anybody else like that? Uh Uh-oh, things aren't going well. Uh, I'm feeling pinched right now. Maybe I should search my life a little bit. Maybe I should look at my life. And so Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Examine your heart. James 4, 8, come near to God. He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, adversity will make us open to seeking God and saying, God, I'm humbled here. Search my heart. Is anything wrong? Anything bad here? So I would say pray. Let God search your heart. Secondly, declare God's promises. Look what, we just said, we just saw what what Jacob did. He was reminding God of the promises he'd been given. And I I talked last week about my daily faith declarations where I have a lot of my prophetic words written. I also want to encourage you to get a book on Kindle. It's called the Rhema Book, Personalized Scripture and Prayers for the Believer. This is by one of my heroes, Wendell Smith. He's in heaven now. He died at age 60 of cancer. Taught me in Bible school. And for years, I mean, he used to have an app that I use, and I had these cards, and they deal with everything to your identity in Christ, to walking in purity, to um, knowing God's will for your life. Like, the scriptures are amazing. They're rich. And I encourage you to get this. It's on Kindle. It's like five bucks. Um, You won't miss it. You You won't miss the money is what I'm saying. You won't regret it. It is amazing. My point is, when we're in the wrestling season, and we're in a adverse place, the best thing we can do is remind ourselves like Jacob did of God's promises to us, of his truth. Get the word of God in your heart. The enemy's going to come in those adverse times and he's going to tell you that God is not caring. He's going to lie to you all over the place. The only thing you can do to fight him is to get truth. Rhema is just God's word living in you. And you need God's word living in you. You need truth. You need to believe what the word of God says about who you are and how God loves you and how he's leading you forward. And thirdly, we need to wrestle in prayer with others. Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm with them. You know, um, 
when we get into difficulty, it's easy to isolate. Anybody ever found that out? It's easy to pull in. You don't bring others into your life. You don't bring them into your walk. And you get very lonely, very isolated. Listen, can I encourage you with something? Definitely pray on your own. Definitely, but bring people in. Get some people praying with you. Get them standing with you because there's something supernatural where two or three gather in Jesus' name. That's why we gather in church, right? You could sit home right now and watch your computer. You could. Can I just say that wouldn't do it? There's something supernatural when we come here and hear the word together. The Lord is with us. And, and he, he is listening and he is working. And so bring others into your wrestle. Let them pray with you. Bring them into your life. And the second key is perseverance. And I already mentioned that, so I'm not going to belabor that. But prayer and perseverance. Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Ask and will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who seeks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. You know that word knock means knock and keep on knocking. Knock and keep on knocking. Perseverance. I remember um, a couple years ago, especially about February 2017. This just sticks in my mind. I remember I was driving in the car one day off of Deerfoot where my house is. It was February it was dark. It was cold. Anybody already depressed thinking about that, right? Like, seriously, right? It was just like, ugh. And I was going to this pastor meeting. I didn't want to go. I don't want to go to some pastor meeting. They're all like talking about their success, and I feel frustrated, and I don't know what to tell. And I don't want to go. Seriously, I'm being real. So I was sitting in my car driving. Okay, I'll go to this meeting. I should go to this meeting. As I was driving, the Holy Spirit entered my car. <laughs> Doesn't happen all the time, just so you know. But it was just like, whew spoke to me. He said, Ian, perseverance is so important. He said, you persevering right now through this time, through this season, through the limitations you feel, through the disappointments you feel. He said, you persevering and continuing to move is everything. And he said, the fact that you're, you're, you're learning it is going to mean everything for your life. Don't ever underestimate perseverance. Don't ever underestimate one foot in front of the other, even when you don't feel like it. I remember him telling me that. And I, I felt encouraged. He just said, it, perseverance matters to me. You know what? Your perseverance in your circumstance, obeying God and being faithful matters to God. And it also sets you up for the future. It sets you up for what God has for you. It builds your muscles. It makes you tougher. Don't ever diminish perseverance. The Bible tells us that we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Don't give up on your harvest. Don't give up on that child. Don't give up on that circumstance. 